And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar to... goes to... My only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. What shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I could have been a contender. Fasten yourself. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer. Yeah. All real man. Love is, is love. too weak a word. Stay back. I love you. I love you. I love you. I did as you Don't laugh! If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV! Respect it and validate it. Remember that you told me? It's time, Robbie. Welcome to the next Best Picture Podcast. And the Oscar goes to... Parasite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 191 of the Next Best Picture podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. Time is recording 11.04 a.m. on April 26, 2020. Still in quarantine, going to be for a little while. No new news there, but we do have some news to discuss this week. We're also going to be talking about our favorite Hugh Jackman performances now that the film Bad Education premiered last night on HBO, which we're actually going to be reviewing uh, next week on the podcast uh, next Saturday. So very, very much looking forward to discussing that in more detail then. Uh, We're going to answer your fan questions, and also the members of the MVP team are going to ask each other questions this week as well. Um, Not maybe particularly movie-related, maybe movie-related, I don't know, but it's just a good chance for us all to get to know one another for the audience to get to know us a little bit more as well and really just kind of heighten this uh, level of communication that we're having during this time so that we can all feel connected here to talk about all these uh, details with me this week in isolation I have Michael Schwartz you're in feeling connected Josh Parm hello hello Nicole Ackman hi everybody Cody Derricks hello there and Tom O'Brien we are family. We are family. I've got my MVP team in me. All right. So first thing I want to discuss this week is um, something that I think we've all known for a very, very, very long time. Tom Hanks has the cure for coronavirus, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's going to save the world. I legitimately thought that that headline was a joke. I really did. I thought it was like an Onion article or something like that. Then I realized, no, oh, well, this is Variety that's reporting this. (laughs) Same, same. It's no surprise, though, right, that Tom Hanks' blood would be used to uh, try to find the cure for coronavirus, right? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) I I think, Michael, I think you were the one who uh, said it best the other day in our group chat about uh, Tom. I've been seeing all sorts of jokes. The best one I saw was from uh, Joy Reid on MSNBC saying, of course, this is how he becomes the real life Forrest Gump and a real part of American history now. Oh, my God. (laughs) So true. Very astute, Joy. (laughs) I was thinking, remember in Young Frankenstein at the very end when uh, Gene Wilder's character gets a piece of the monster in him and then he starts having the behavior of Frankenstein's monster? Mm -hmm. We're all going to get the vaccine and then be as kind as Tom Hanks after this. Basically, yeah. Uh, there's other news to really discuss in more uh, serious matters, but hey, listen, if Tom Hanks is the cure for us all, God willing, that would be amazing. Uh, but before we get to these other uh, blurbs of news this week, I want to go around really quick and ask everyone what they've been watching this week at home. Uh, Michael, we'll start off with you. Yeah, so two movies for me this week. Uh, two seems like different movies, but then I was thinking about it, and they actually have some odd things in common. So I'm going to start with last Sunday, and actually tied this back to last week's show. We were talking about... Uh, actors who we thought should have been Oscar nominated or taken the roles of other people in previous Oscar years. And I said that I really liked uh, Kirsten Dunst in the movie Dick from 1999. 
So I thought, oh, yeah, I should probably go watch that movie again. And I did. And what a delight that movie is. Uh, young Kirsten Dunst, Michelle Williams, and a 70s political comedy. Uh, really recommended for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's a light romp, but it also has a lot to say about, you know, corruption and D.C., something we're all very aware about these days. And a uh, really good movie, smart screenplay, liked it quite a bit. And then I watched another movie about corruption to end the week. Just last night, I watched Bad Education on HBO. Which I don't want you to go into full, full detail. Like I said, we'll save that for our actual podcast review in a couple of days. But yeah, ultimately, what did you think? Loved it. I think it's the best performance of Hugh Jackman's career. I think it's right up there with the best work Allison Janney has ever done. Smart screenplay, such a great social commentary on the state of the American public school system and just overall corruption that you know happens in broad daylight here in this country. It was remarkable, I thought. Yeah, yeah. I actually just finished watching it uh, five minutes before we hopped on the air. So I it's very, very fresh in my mind right now. That's for sure. I'm very, very excited that uh, a lot of people are getting a chance to finally watch it after its premiere at TIFF back in September. Um, let's move over now to Nicole. Nicole, what have you been catching up on? So I've actually been struggling a little bit with watching movies lately. I think in this whole pandemic thing, I've been gravitating more towards television and to I've been watching a lot of filmed musicals. But this week I rewatched Frozen 1 and 2 back to back, which was a really interesting experience in that it confirmed a lot of things that I had felt about Frozen 2 and in, in that I preferred it to the first Frozen. Um, and being able to like watch them straight through as like a, a four hour thing really uh, let me make a final decision on that. Um, and I also watched the true history of the Kelly gang, which you can read like my full thoughts on that in the review, which is up on the website. But I thought the performances were great. It's a really bold film. It won't be for everyone, but it's really interesting and really worth a watch, especially right now while there's not much new stuff coming out. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I'm planning on getting to that sometime later this afternoon. I'm looking forward to that, especially, uh, uh, that's another TIFF movie that uh, kind of, you know, just kind of, I don't know. Here we are. <laughs> I do want to put a, a warning on it. Um, if you have any kind of issues with strobe lights, there are two extended scenes in the film that are done, like, in strobe. And, like, I... I don't have epilepsy or any kind of condition like that, but I found it very difficult to watch. Like there's a whole scene that I kind of only could glance at. Um, but if you do have any kind of condition that makes strobe lighting something that you can't handle, I would say this honestly might be something that you need to skip or you need to watch with someone who can like tell you when it's coming. So on a scale of one to the club scene in Babel, uh, where does it? <laughs> it's <happen>? pretty bad. <laughs> no, I, I hear you on that one. Theaters always put up warnings for that sort of thing uh, traditionally as well whenever there's a scene like that in any movie usually. So I, I, I get it. I, I remember like I remember there were warnings for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse now that I'm even thinking about it uh, when that movie came out for not not a similar effect, but a uh, similar type of feeling that that would give off. So it's not something you would expect in like a period film. <laughs> no, of course not. All right. Let's hear now from Josh. Uh, so this week I managed to catch up on some stuff that I've been meaning to get to. And then I just sort of we watched some older things just because I felt like returning to them. Uh, one thing that I did see for the first time was that I finally caught up with Crip Camp, the Netflix documentary. Yeah, yeah. And I like that one overall. Um, it has a really kind of much broader scope than I was expecting, and I kind of appreciated that from the film. And it's a really important story. So it's on Netflix. If you have the chance to see it, I'd, I'd recommend that one. Uh, and then I rewatched. Uh, v for Vendetta, just because I kind of felt like rewatching it, and 
Um, I used to really like that movie. It doesn't quite hold up as well as I remembered it, but it's still an entertaining film that um, I still enjoyed. It's not quite as good as I remembered it, but I, I still liked it overall. Same feeling, Josh. Same feeling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also saw True History of the Kelly Gang this weekend, and uh, this was a movie that I have to say was a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be. And it's not really the kind of typical movie that you think it would be where it's almost like a celebration sort of, of this violent history. It actually is a lot more serious and a lot more introspective about kind of violent legacies than I was expecting. And it's not perfect. It could use a little bit more um, tight focus, I think, but uh, it's a much more fascinating movie than I thought I was going to get. So I appreciated that element from it a lot. And then I randomly came across this movie on Netflix called Time to Hunt. And it is a Korean thriller, like a Korean crime thriller. And that should automatically conjure up some images if you're familiar with that type of movie. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's not the best that that kind of genre has to offer, but it has sort of the typical things that you would expect. And, you know, for what it is, for a Netflix movie to kill two hours, it it, it was good. Uh and then the last thing is that I rewatched Aliens because I just loved that movie so much and felt like uh, rewatching it. Never a bad time to revisit James Cameron, right? <laughs> no, and that movie is it's so good. I love the first Alien movie, as you know, and what I love about Aliens is that it basically knew to not do the same movie over again, that it uh, completely changed the tone and all the better for it. It's a great, great movie. That's like one thing about James Cameron in general uh, that I has me somewhat excited for the Avatar sequels because Terminator 2 is not the same movie as the first Terminator and Aliens is not the same film as Alien. So I'm wondering if that same logic of, oh, we're just not going to do the same thing again to get more money. We're going to tell a story that's actually worth telling. Um, I'm wondering if that's going to apply uh, with Avatar 2, 3, 400, whatever. It is. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, I am always in the bag for James Cameron. I think that he is one of the great filmmakers working today. I don't think he's made a bad movie. And I, I really do think that in terms of just presenting a film that is so entertaining while also indulging in great uses of technology and even most of the time good character work, I think he's really good at that. Awesome. Awesome. Cody, what about yourself? So for work, I run this uh, movie drinking game that we do once a month at my job. Ooh, taking notes. Yeah, it's a lot of fun <laughs> here in Chicago. Uh, and in the quarantine, obviously, we can't do that in public. So we've been doing it over Instagram. Uh, if anybody wants to follow us, we're at Music Box Drink Along. And we did a live uh, drinking game to Hercules this past week. And Nicole was there. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a great time. I realized I forgot to say that. Um, I think it's maybe because I wasn't thinking about that as watching a movie. I was thinking about that as like watching <laughs> Cody give instructions for when to drink. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was really fun, y'all. Cody did a very good job. The next time he does one, you should all definitely tune in. I was very nice and tipsy. Actually, Michael can can confirm that because we Skyped afterwards. <laughs> And I will say, I didn't get a chance to sit down and watch all of Hercules, but I did tune in to, you know, watch Cody's reaction to him watching the movie for a few minutes. So, uh, endorse everything there. I wanted to say for the record that Michael Bolton's uh, version, I, I Can Go to Distance, is 
Well, let's just say it's a favorite of mine. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. We were all screlting at the end. It was great. Yeah. Uh, there may be a video of me on the internet singing that song uh, very badly good. somewhere. Proud of you. Right. Um, <laughs> I watch Randy Rainbow's I Will Social Distance. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then in not work-based uh, entertainment news, uh, longtime listeners will be happy to hear that I'm out of the Roger Moore era of my James Bond watch. Hooray, hooray. Yay. On to Timothy Dalton. <laughs> Haven't started that yet, so we'll see. But um, yeah, A View to a Kill was, you know, kind of boring, but has an amazing song. So you take what you can get. And then yesterday we watched all three Star Wars sequels from the this decade in order. Wow. I, I had not seen Rise of Skywalker since it was in theaters. So I was interested to see how it would stack up against the other two. And uh, the answer is not well, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry to report. I, the first two, especially Last Jedi, are like so like just perfect machines of popcorn entertainment with actual weight to them. And then Rise of Skywalker, it's I don't think it's a horrible movie. But it really does like just deflate <laughs> into itself. It's a disappointment, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's there's things to like about it, but I mean, God, Force Awakens is so fun, and Last Jedi is like so elegant and just perfectly paced, and the themes are so strong that to see Rise of Skywalker is it's a it's a little bit of a like a, a wet landing. It's not great, but oh well, still Star Wars. Though. I love Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a shame. And Tom, oh, uh, I. I, I caught up on the first four episodes of Mrs. America. Nice. Yeah. I won't talk about four because I know that the next best series hasn't touched it yet. Correct. But um, it, it kind of got off on the wrong foot with me because it had a lot of, uh, you know, to my mind, cliches about setting up that this is the 70s, you know, white girls with big afros and, you know, television footage, napalm babies and things like that. Yeah. OK, we get it. That's fine. And I really worried about the rest of the series. But once the performances kicked in, uh, then all my worries were gone and the writing became very strong. Uh, they, they put together a murderer's row of actresses, thank goodness. Uh, and it's, I was really glad of the structure of it. Um, it's, if, in, in, in case you haven't heard, it's like they're going to take one character and be, that have her be the primary focus, although... Um, almost everybody is in all the episodes anyway, so the story kind of continues on. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of that structure myself. Yeah, yeah, it's terrific. The only thing I'm, I'm really worried about it, but looking forward to, is uh, so far I think that uh, Kate Blanchett's uh, Phyllis Schlafly is a bit of a blank to me. And um, she must have taken this role to do American television series for a reason. So, I mean, hopefully Phyllis will, you know, go all blue Jasmine in us later on. Uh, there's got to be something as to why she's, uh, she took on this part. So that I'm really looking forward to. So uh, on to episode five. Yeah, absolutely. And as Tom said, we're reviewing that on Next Best Series right now. So, Tom, feel free to join us uh, when we do our next uh, podcast for that one, actually. You got it. That's great. Um, I did see uh, one film. It's a documentary. Uh, called Circus of Books. Okay. Uh, oh, uh, I want to see that so badly. On uh, Netflix. Um, it's a it's a documentary by a woman named uh, Rachel Mason, and it's about her parents. Um, her mom, <laughs> her mom Karen, uh, who's a devout uh, conservative Jew, spends a lot of time at uh, synagogue, and they're, they're kind of goofy, devil-may-care uh, dad, Barry. And um, they... The kids are told that uh, if they're ever asked uh, what their parents do, 
they say they run a bookstore, which they do. But what a bookstore. It is a circus of books. It's a, it was a real bookstore. And if anyone lived in the uh, West Hollywood area in the, in the 90s or any time this century, uh, circus of books was really the center of gay life in West Hollywood. Um, the, the front of the store had some erotica, but not really heavy stuff. The back, really heavy gay stuff. And uh, this nice Jewish couple kind of just ran it for everybody else. And it's, it's the paradox of it is so interesting, particularly when uh, one of the sons, her sons have come out and dad's fine with it. Um, but Karen, who deals with gay, heavy gay porn all day, cannot take the fact that her own son is gay. And it's that just that family kind of dynamic. It just comes, it becomes really far more interesting than just oh, this is a, you know about a couple who does gay porn. I would highly recommend Circus of Books if you want. If you're looking for something to stream. Yeah, Tom, that sounds really really interesting. Um, I'm actually now very very convinced that I will find a way to watch that sometime this week. Uh, it sounds really really uh, fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I've been meaning to watch that one myself. It's sitting on my queue, and I've been meaning to get to it. Yeah. Uh, For myself this week, um, uh, we reviewed Ida on the uh, podcast, which we revisited for our 2014 retrospective. So you can hear my thoughts on that one. Uh, At home, my roommates love to watch movies where they don't have to, like, think that much when they watch stuff. So we watched um, Bad Boys 2, uh, The Gentleman, rewatch. And uh, in my own time, um, I, I turned on a movie that I thought they would like, but they were just not interested at all. Um, I turned on Extraction on Netflix with Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. Uh, shot well. Good action choreography. Borrows a lot from like John Wick in that regard. Uh, but the story was very dull to me. And I ultimately ended up like, I, I don't say I, I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed watching it for what it was, but I was just mixed on the whole thing altogether. And um, watched Bad Education uh, this morning, as I said earlier, which I will do a podcast review on later this week. But a topic uh, to discuss in regards to that is uh, Hugh Jackman. I've heard a lot of people since TIFF say that uh, they thought Bad Education was Hugh Jackman's best performance. So I figured uh, for this week's poll, we'll ask that very question of people. What do they think is uh, Hugh Jackman's best performance and there's a wide range of answers with this one because he's an actor with a considerable amount of range stemming back from his uh, days on uh, Broadway and um, theater work that he's done he can sing he can dance he can get physical he can you know be funny he can be dramatic he can do it all so um, there's a lot to really really go with here Um, there are some Oscar worthy performances and there are some that are um, not so Oscar worthy performances, but he always tends to be a standout in everything that he does. I can't really think of a time where I thought that Hugh Jackman was actively bad. Oh, well, I guess there's movie 43, but I don't know if I count that so much. That's a different situation right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but even in something like Pan, you know, mm. I, I don't know if I would say he's like bad, bad, bad. You know what I mean? I would. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Hi guys, I'm Dean. And I'm Daniel. And we're from the Movie Journey Podcast. Where we break down every movie from the IMDb Top 250 list, giving our own thoughts and reviews and any general discussion along the way. We're also home of the Pod V Pod, where we battle other podcasters in various movie games and drafts. We also do reviews of new releases, film tournaments, top five lists, and talk about everything else we've watched as well. We used to be the IMDb Journey Podcast, but since then, we've grown and matured. 
matured with age. Yeah, if you don't believe us, why don't you listen to some more Genuine Testimonies? Oh, hey guys, I uh, I used to like the IMDb Journey podcast, but since then I've found something even better. It's the Movie Journey podcast. Oi, bro, I know I said the IMDb Journey podcast was a good show, but the Movie Journey podcast is so much better. Absolutely for sure, yeah. You know, I used to think that nothing could be funnier than IMDb Journey, but I've now found my joy in Movie Journey podcast. The IMDb Journey podcast is nothing compared to the Movie Journey podcast. Absolutely love this podcast. <laughs> oh, amazing oh, testimonies once again. Absolutely legit and real. Of course. And if you still don't believe those testimonies, go ahead and check out the show for yourself by searching for the Movie Journey podcast. You can find us on all your favourite platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and Podbean. So come along and join our journey. Let's talk about Hugh Jackman, uh, since he seems to be uh, a topic of discussion this week for those that are catching Bad Education on HBO. Uh, Michael, what is a uh, Hugh Jackman performance that really stands out to you? Well, I said earlier in the show, and I stand by it, my favorite T. Jackman performance now is Bad Education. I think it's the best work he's ever done. Yeah, it definitely is different uh, than anything he's ever done. Very subtle, doesn't overplay it. Yeah, his most inspired performance. He's going for a different tone than I've seen from him. Before Bad Education, though, I would say, uh, with a caveat, I really do like him in Les Mis, even though his Bring Him Home sounds like he's singing it with a sinus infection. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, aside from that, I do think he gets into... uh, some emotional moments for Jean Valjean. Not that they're hard to mine. You know, it's the character is everything right on the surface there. But I think he does a nice job of bringing him to life on screen, even though he is, you know, you know, not the best rendition I've ever seen of the character. I still appreciate elements of that performance. But Bad Education is where I would say it's uh, by far his best work. Nicole? So I haven't seen Bad Education yet. I will, like, caveat all of this with that. But the poll asks, what is your favorite Hugh Jackman performance? Not what do you think his best is? So I'm going to say his performance in Kate and Leopold. I find that movie really charming. I think it's the most I've ever liked him while watching a film. Um, Hugh Jackman is not one of my favorite actors. I really dislike him in Les Mis. Um, But I actually really like him in, in Kate and Leopold. And my other favorite Hugh Jackman performance, no joke, is... Uh, the filmed version of Oklahoma that he's in, he plays Curly, and he really smashes that out of the park, and you can find that online many places. So if you are a fan of Hugh Jackman's singing and you've not seen that, I would definitely recommend checking that out. I just read an interesting comment that somebody posted actually um, on our uh, Twitter feed about Hugh Jackman where they said, uh, for movies, Hugh Jackman is a great singer. For Broadway, he might be the worst singer. I was like, ooh, <laughs> boy. Cody, what about yourself? Okay, I'm glad I'm going after Nicole because I'm also not a fan of Hugh Jackman generally as an actor. Uh, I really. I knew don't. I had you with me. For yeah, this, I was going to so. put in if I wasn't next anyway. So yeah, uh, I also am not a fan at all of his lamest performance. I think it's everything that people say about Russell Crowe in that movie is even worse in Hugh Jackman, but like in a weird Dark World Mirror version, <laughs> he's like trying too hard, <laughs> and it's just not for me. Um, I. <sighs> I, I think I would actually have to say my favorite performance of his is maybe the greatest showman. Uh, if what? only because if only because it is tapping into all the things he likes the most in the world, which like, you know, he can do all the freaking Wolverine movies he wants. He wants to be screlting on a Broadway stage yep. like nothing else. And I think it's kind of weaponizes his like inherent charm and points out the without even trying the kind of uh, weird underbelly of malice that I sometimes find he has even when he's doing musical theater stuff because the performance in Great Showman is like 
somebody on uppers for two hours, and that's you know fun to watch. Uh, I'm also a weird defender of the frontrunner. I think he's pretty decent in that movie, but otherwise, yeah, sorry, Hugh. See, I thought his performance in Bad Education was exactly what the frontrunner should have been, so I'm curious for you to check that one out, Cody, uh, when you get a chance. Yeah, I mean, it it looked like the kind of thing I want him to be doing, which is like playing somebody that everybody's like, wow, isn't he great? And some people are like, no, which is, you know, how I feel. So maybe I'll like him in that. Yeah. Everything Cody just said about The Greatest Showman is why I personally can't wait to see him this fall, hopefully this fall, uh, in The Music Man. I think all that, you know, goes right into the character of Harold Hill, and that'll work well for him. I mean, he's going to end every performance of that show by like eating a child or something like it's going to be out of control <laughs> yeah <laughs> josh parm what about you uh well i would also lead with the caveat that i have not seen bad education yet although i plan on seeing it very soon so with that i'd actually say that my favorite performance of him uh is in the prestige i think that that is a character that isn't the i don't think he's that well written but i think that what he's given um, I think he actually does a pretty good job with it, and it's a much more kind of restrained character than we usually kind of get from him. And I, I really do like that performance from him. I like that one, too. Actually, I think that he drives the obsession uh, factor uh, very, very well without going over the top with it, even though, you know, there are a lot of times where I feel like Hugh Jackman is cast to like play himself a lot of times. I don't really get the sense that he's playing a character. He's given, you know, themes to work with in the script that uh, helps to display, you know, a bit of range. But um, a lot of times I feel like he's always cast as that charismatic, suave, uh, charming, likable type of person. And then there is, um, uh, as someone just said this before, like sometimes there's like this underbelly of darkness brewing underneath that facade. And I think that's when he's actually at his best. Um You know, like in Bad Education or in something like The Prestige as well, even though that's not my answer. Uh, Tom, <laughs> that's I think he's great in the prestige. Um, I have not seen bad education either. I'm really looking forward to it. I would say probably my favorite Hack- Jackman performance is as the aggrieved father in prisoners. Mm. The back and forth he has with Jake Gyllenhaal while at the same time determined to find out who um, kidnapped his daughter. And he is obsessed with making him pay it was it was a surprise it was a turn i didn't expect in the in the film in the character and uh, just uh, the, the way jackman goes for it he's really not afraid to tamper with his image for a change with this one and uh, i thought it really is one of his strongest performances yeah i know a lot of people sometimes that's like one of the roles where they think that he does go a little too over the top maybe with some of the rage uh in that film but um, I, I, there are at least two instances in that movie where when I watch it um, and his performance, um, it leaves me stunned in silence. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa. You know what I mean? Like, I'm taken mm-hmm. aback sometimes by how much he really, really digs underneath the skin of that character. Yeah. And who is this? I don't know this Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Speaking of digging, um, Logan is my answer. Uh, it's a culmination of decades worth of work with that character culminating in a very mature, melancholy uh, end for that character's arc and journey. And I was very, very surprised by the emotion that he was able to tap to and into it. It's not just your typical generic action superhero film by any means. There's a real sadness and weathered quality to that character, which uh, gave him a lot to work with that I don't think I've ever seen him do as much of in other roles before. Like I said, I feel like a lot of times he's cast as a certain type of character, 
but here I felt like uh, all the Hugh Jackman sensibilities that we like about him were all stripped away, and instead it was like he was doing something entirely different. And I'm still impressed at his age, just the level of physicality that he brings to um, that role, well, or used to bring to to that role. Uh, you can head on over to the polls page, cast a vote there. Favorite Hugh Jackman performance? Uh, maybe there are fans, maybe there aren't fans, uh, as some people have suggested here uh, today. But I do highly recommend Bad Education for those that have not seen it yet. Not to mention, it also got a good Alice and Janney performance in it as well. So there's that. Yeah, can I just say about Alice and Janney again? I think that's what she won- should have won the Oscar for. I think it's far better than her work in I, Tanya. And, you know, she's such a wonderful actress. It's always hard to say, oh, this is her best. But I really think this is among her best work. I think she's amazing in it. And I do agree with you, Michael, that overall, I think it is a stronger performance. I wish she was in the movie more. That's my only complaint. Yeah, fair enough. Where with I, Tanya, she's sprinkled throughout. But I feel like the middle section of the movie, she's just gone, which was a real disappointment for me, actually. But yeah, no, she's excellent in it. So enough on that. We'll have more thoughts on that uh, this Saturday for our podcast review. Uh, Moving over now to other little bits of news that occurred uh, this week. So I'm just really curious. Uh, There was uh, news reports that Christopher Nolan is still not budging with Tenet uh, and its release date. So I'm I'm just curious. Just checking in with everyone here. Do we really, really think that that's indeed going to stay where it is in July? I mean, it's kind of out of his control, you know, it's <laughs> he may not he have a choice. Say, he exactly. can say all he wants, but if the theaters aren't all open, then like, what's he going to do? Exactly. So now <laughs> there's another report that AMC theaters won't actually reopen until there actually is new studio product. Yeah, agreed. I mean, they're yeah. doing what they have to do. We should not be celebrating them just because they're doing the right thing. This right. Is, you know, the bare minimum. I mean, what this really all just comes down to, I think, especially in the last couple of days, as as there's been more talk about reopening the economy and reopening business, and some places are actually already doing that. Um, I think that people really need to just get it through their heads or at least prepare for the fact that there is not going to be a summer movie season, plain and simple. Yeah, I think that holding on to that July release date for Tenet is still extremely optimistic, even from this point. Um, You know, there's just so many different unknown factors heading into that, that we don't know what things are going to be like by the time July rolls around. And, you know, I would love to be able to see that movie in a theater, but I, I, I'll i be honest, I do not have a lot of faith that that's going to stay. Not to mention, too, I don't know about you guys, but the minute they say, oh, movie theaters are open again, are we running to the theater right away? Or are we waiting a couple of weeks? I'm not risking my life for Tenet. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, not for, not for Tenet, just movie theaters in general. Once movie theaters get the okay to open back up again, are we going right away? Or are we going to like, eh, let's wait and see for a couple of weeks and see what happens, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's probably going to happen. Like, I'd love to be back in a theater, but if they do open up right away, I don't know if I am in the mood to go right back into it. Yeah, and we're still going to be wearing masks. I mean, nothing is going to change as far as that goes, probably. Uh, and, uh, you know, what are you going to do about concessions? Are you going to eat popcorn through the bottom of your mask? Uh, it's going to be a strange experience. I thought I could put, yeah, I thought I could like just shove the popcorn all up in the mask and then just like chew no hand style, you know, (laughs) like a horse. (laughs) (laughs) And the big question I have is that they keep talking about this is going to come back in the fall. And now all of the big pictures are in the fall. 
what's that going to do? It means that a lot of movies, I think, that were either still in post-production or late stages of production that were aiming for a fall release date or to make a festival run, those are pushed off. So hypothetically, if there is an award season this year, which I mean, I think there's still going to be one personally, it's going to be populated, I think, by these larger movies much more so than the typical Oscar bait projects or indie film releases that we're accustomed to seeing around this time of year. You, you might even see a Best Picture nomination for Top Gun, too. <laughs> Guys, could this be Tom Cruise's Oscar run for Best Actor? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> I will be stunned if A Quiet Place Part 2 actually opens in September. Like, if that actually goes through, that's, you know, th- that would be a good first step. So with Tenet in July, I don't even know what that's about. I think that's just pure optimism. And a way for the studios to hopefully give a shot in the arm to the box office at the movie theaters as like a welcome back. But yeah, I don't know. July's just looking more and more unlikely every single day. I don't think it's going to happen. I think they're going to have to push it. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see it in a theater. I am very much looking forward to that day, but I just don't think that day is going to be in July. No. And if you do push it, push it to the right time. Like in the Heights this past week announced that they're delaying an entire year. Yeah. Because that is not a movie that's really designed for November or December. That's a movie you want to see in the summer, you know, with the right energy and the right crowd. And, you know, hopefully when this all passes. So, you know, you wait for the right moment. The movie will be the movie. It's going to be the same thing a year from now or two years from now. Yep. Hi, everyone. This is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano De Silva. And this is Walter Vinci. And together we are the First Time Watchers Podcast. Each week, we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss. These movies could be new. Or old. Or on our list of shame. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the First Time Watchers podcast. As well as on Stitcher. And we love interacting with our listeners. So if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet. An email. Or post to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. I mean, it's all about interaction. And talk about what we love. Movies. And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about this and that and the other. And, oh, no, look, no, let's no. talk stop, about stop, this stop, minutiate Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And shut I up. wonder shut who up. the gap can watch. God damn it, shut up. I think that's enough. Oh, my God. I want to uh, thank our fans uh, for giving us a lot of questions to answer on a weekly basis. They've been really, really, really great. Um, and we really, really appreciate everyone taking the time to come up with questions for us to answer. It gives us a lot to talk about, and it's helping to make the show still a worthwhile, fun endeavor for us all to come here every week and uh, you know just talk about the things that we love. So um, with that said, for some fan questions this week, Scott Kernan uh, asks, looking at this year's Oscar race and perhaps some of the other more noticeable ones, which Best Picture nominees do you think were closest to winning Best Picture on the preferential ballot but did not? Well, obviously, La La Land. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. This past year, I would say, you know, I don't see any reason why 1917 wouldn't be the runner up. No, I think you're right in that regard. Yeah. Although still to this day, that director win for Bong Joon-ho is like, whoa, <laughs> I right. still cannot believe yeah. that he yeah. pulled that off. <laughs> see, that to me says that it maybe wasn't that close. I'm sure 1917 was in second place, but I think the distance between those two movies is a little bit larger than we initially thought. 
Yeah. Yeah. If the PGA is like something we always are going to say is the bellwether of how things are looking, PGA tying for gravity 12 years of sleep. I mean, there you go. Also, too, um, I don't know. Do we think the Revenant was close to Spotlight? I do think the Revenant was close. I know history has not been kind to that movie, but at the time it felt like it was really close. It won director and actor. Yeah, BAFTA, Golden Globe for Best Picture. Yeah, I was predicting it for like double the amount of Oscars it actually got, so... Yeah, I would say those are the closest ones. Yeah, I don't think Life of Pi was close to Argo or Lincoln uh, close to Argo. I think Argo ran away with that. Lincoln was probably way down, and that's a shame, but, you know, it only got actor and production design. Mm -hmm. He couldn't even win for Tony Kushner. That's insane. That that Don't mind me. I don't like thinking about that. And nothing against Argo. I love Argo, but come on. A little against Argo. <laughs> Add that CM guy 1988 asks, name an actor or actress that you guys would like to see playing a real life famous person that one day can be made into a real movie. Ooh. Okay. Florence Pugh as Hillary Clinton. I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are we talking like decades from now when she's age appropriate? She looks like her now. Yeah, sorry. Florence Pugh now looks like uh, young Hillary Clinton. You'd yeah. have to get two actresses to play her then. No, it could just be. Yeah. It could be a movie about young Hillary. Yeah. Remember the the Adventures of Young Indiana Jones? This could be like the Adventures of Young yeah. Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I'm echoing something I said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Uh, just because once I heard this idea, I can't get it out of my head. I need to see Michael Keaton play Joe Exotic. <laughs> <laughs> I need oh, it. <laughs> yeah, that is like perfect casting. As soon as I saw that, it's like it's hard to imagine anybody else. <laughs> yeah, he's got it all for this part. I'm like blanking. It's such a broad question. It's a very good question. I just don't know where it would go. Well, who would we, if we're going to cast Michael Keaton as what's his face? I haven't seen Tiger King, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But who would you cast as uh, the lady, the one who killed her husband? Carol Baskin. Chloe Feynman from SNL. (laughs) Who did the best Carol Baskin a few weeks ago. It was pretty entertaining. I agree. That was good. I kind of feel like you got to go for Alice and Janney. Alice and Janney, I thought, would be a perfect, perfect choice. I agree. What about like Sharon Stone or something like that? Yeah, oh, that, that would be fun. Yeah, Alice, I mean, Alice and Janney's got the malevolence to be able to play Carol, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think Alice and Janney is like, it, that would be the top of the mountain for me if I, if I could. Or we can get Charlize up in that prosthetics again. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, if SNL is any indication, I think we all want to see Brad Pitt pay, uh, play Dr. Fauci at some point. <laughs> that was fun. Uh, oh, hear me out on this one. How about... Meryl Streep as Margaret Thatcher. Oh, what a great idea, Michael. Let's let's write that screenplay and green light it right away. <laughs> uh, sorry, what about Julian Anderson? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. That's, you know, before we know it, there it is, the crown. Yeah. Uh, this is, I don't know if, the, uh, listen, I think this is an obvious question. No offense to the person that's asking it, but um, I, I don't know. Maybe there's a discussion here. Isaiah Washington asks, is it a voter's responsibility to watch every Oscar bait movie or movie in the awards conversation, even if it doesn't look good to them? Yeah, I mean, you're given this you know, obligation to vote on behalf of the Academy. If we're all watching the movies and you're the one voting, yeah, you do have the responsibility to see everything. Yeah, I mean, you run your honor. Uh, and, um, you know, some people take honor seriously and some people don't. I guess my caveat to this would be that if there's a movie that's in the award conversation that, let's say, has like Kevin Spacey in it. And a voter says, like, I don't feel like I can ethically watch this. I wouldn't vote for it anyways because he is in it. Then I feel like I could understand that. 
But otherwise, yeah, I feel like if if you're a voter, you should be watching all the the eligible things. Yeah. And and I kind of object to the term Oscar bait. I mean, there's certain kind of Oscar bait movies, but there are some films that are major Oscar contenders that are not on their surface designed to win Oscars. And I think people need to see both of them. Agreed. John Anzalone asks, hey, very MVP crew of all the acting upsets in recent years, such as Olivia Coleman, Meryl Streep, Mark Rylance, any others you might think of. Who do you think was the closest call and which do you think might not have been a close call at all, even though history suggests that it was? We have had them. They're not as common now as they were 20 years ago, but they happen from time to time. Like, you know, when Olivia Coleman took it in 2018, which no one's a few people thought it was a possibility with her in second place. But no <laughs> yeah, one actually yeah, went yeah, in. yeah, yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, some of them are here, but it was not a consensus thing where people were like, oh, yeah, Olivia Coleman's finally going to win that Oscar. And it was like, you know, rumblings of that. Yeah. But I'm sure we all know that Glenn is pretty close. Yeah, that was a that was a close race. Uh, one that I actually don't think was very close is the Margaret Rylance win. I actually think that he probably took that by a comfortable margin. Oh, I agree with you. There. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we could have done even better. We've been proven time and again that they don't like to reward the like comeback narrative, especially for men. So I, I think that was not as surprising as people like to say. Another one that was uh, perceived to be close. I don't think it was close at all. I think Alan Arkin was way ahead of Eddie Murphy, the year of Dream Girls. Uh, I, I don't know that I agree with that. I think Eddie Murphy really had a good campaign going for him. And even though it, there is a little bit of that Stallone comeback thing, it was also a movie that had more than a single nomination. It was a movie they liked quite a bit that year. I mean, uh, number one by extension, if you want to think of the comeback narrative, is um, Sean Penn over uh, Mickey Rourke. Yeah, I don't think that was close mm-hmm. at all. I, right. I, I yeah. remember it being very likely, and I think I predicted Penn to win. Precursors make us think that a race is close, and then when you actually see the eventual Oscar nominations and how much the Academy likes a certain film over the other in question, we still tell ourselves that, oh, no, this person could still pull it off, you know what I mean, or whatever it is. And then, you know, the eventual movie that they clearly liked more one. I think those are like your best instances where it's like, yeah, no, it, it was a blowout. Like it wasn't close at all. Yeah, I think in 2012, supporting actor, that was a case where any of them could have won any of those yeah, five. That's true. But the votes just split because there was passion behind all of them that Christoph Waltz ended up taking it. So he may have had a lead, but, you know, it wasn't. Like you know, through the roof. Definitely don't think that was a blowout. Oh boy, here we go. Ethan May, back again this week. From the list provided, choose which movie you would have had them won an Oscar for, but you are knowingly replacing the winner of that year. Mm. First up, Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm, okay, so. I consider Jamie Lee Curtis to be lead in True Lies, and I have no issues at all giving her an Oscar for that. Not a Blue Sky fan? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a very, very good answer, and maybe the best answer you could provide for her, probably. I'd be okay with her winning Best Actress for Halloween. I mean, I don't really think Jane Fonda's second Oscar is anything spectacular. I love I love her, but Coming Home is not like an amazing performance to me, so yeah, she can have that one. See, this is a tricky one, because there's a Jamie Lee Curtis performance that I love, 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 but uh, it's actually in 2003 for Freaky Friday. I think she's fantastic in that. But at the same time, I love Diane Keaton so much and something's got to give and don't want to take that win away from her. 
Dankin didn't win for Someone's Gotta Give. In my mind, she did. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck, Michael? <laughs> uh, <laughs> this alternate timeline, the Schwartz timeline. Seriously. So we're going to go back to 1988. and uh, Fish called Wanda. Or Fish called Wanda. Yeah. That's yeah. a good one, too. Terrific yeah. in that. If I have to choose something for her, I am going with the True Lies one because, yeah, same thing. I'm not a big, big fan of that Oscar win. Okay. Uh, Peter O'Toole. Oh, so easy. Line and Winter. Line and Winter, obviously. Line and winter. <laughs> yeah, I actually don't mind him winning over Gregory Peck. I mean, Gregory Peck is a legend, obviously, but I think he, I, I prefer Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. I understand that, but then I also think, like, comparing the legacy of Gregory Peck in um, To Kill a Mockingbird and Cliff Robertson in Charlie, it's like, I, one of those goes down a lot easier. Yeah. yeah, I agree. That's a very good point. <laughs> Charlie. Who here has seen Charlie? Me. I watched oh, it kind of yeah. recently, actually. Uh, yeah, I've seen it. I, it's been a while, but I have seen it. It's a tough set. Uh, I, I was more amused on Curb Your Enthusiasm this past season when Richard Lewis did Flowers for Algernon. That was uh, more amusing <laughs> than uh, Robertson's Oscar-winning performance. I also feel like just of the years that Peter O'Toole was nominated, like, to to take it from someone in... 68 is so much easier. I agree. Yeah, that yeah. that was always his problem is that his competition was sort of like an all-timer or like something undeniable that year. It's just really yeah. hard to see a path for him. But 68 is like the one time where you could have done it and you really wouldn't have bumped into any issues. Yeah, because I'm looking at his wins now. He loses to Forrest Whitaker in Last King of Scotland, uh, Ben Kingsley in Gandhi, De Niro in Raging Bull. I mean, it's like, it's hard yeah. to crack that. Yeah. Brando in the, the Godfather. John Wayne in yeah. True Grit. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Penny Marshall. Ooh. Hmm. Gotta do some maneuvering for this one. Yeah, this one's a little tough. <laughs> yeah, it, it's tough because my, my favorite movie that she ever directed was A League of Their Own, but. It, I also love Unforgiven that year, and it's hard for me to take that away from Clint. So I think I'm going to say uh, director for Big, if I have to give it to her for one. For 1988? Yeah, and that's taking it away from uh, Barry Levinson for Rain Man. I'll go with that. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I'll go I with that, too. that now. Yeah, would Barry Levinson still win Best Picture? Probably. Probably. Okay. I, I, I think it was like that. undeniable, yeah. Darren Aronofsky. Well, I already give him the best director win in 2010, even over Fincher, so easily. Yeah, I, I could go for that. It's a great piece of direction. Mm. Not going for the Falcon, that's for sure. <laughs> no. I, this is actually tough because I'm not that big of a fan of Darren Aronofsky, so trying to award him an Oscar is actually kind of difficult for me. <laughs> even over Tom Hooper? I mean, I guess if I have to, yeah. Uh, he's not my favorite in that category, but I guess if I have to, I'll say Black Swan. Now, I'm also not a big fan of that movie either. Ooh. Oh. Two truths and a lie. <laughs> <laughs> the truths are coming out. <laughs> eh, sorry. Lynn Ramsey. She gave him best director over Michelle has a... Uh, has enough of vicious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah I would say that. Yeah. And that was for, um, we need to talk about Kevin. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, love that movie so much. Me too. So cool. Melissa McCarthy. Uh, well, this is actually easy for me because Melissa McCarthy is my supporting actress winner for Bridesmaids in 2011. Me too, Josh. Mm. She's my runner up, but I still love uh, Minnie Jackson and the help Octavia Spencer. So I'm going to go with 2018 for Can You Ever Forgive Me? 
I think Can You Ever Forgive Me is definitely her best performance she's ever given, but I feel awful taking it away from Olivia Coleman. So I, too, will go with uh, Bridesmaids for the supporting actress win. Oh, but you'll take it away from Octavia. Yeah. <sighs> and I would do it again. <laughs> she's been better since then, in my opinion. She's going to bring you a pie, Matt. That's fine with me. <laughs> You know, a second choice that I would actually go for is um, for her and Spy. Ooh, yes. That's a good choice. Although we all know Rose Byrne and Spy is is such a funny movie. Oh, that movie's so good. Like, everybody in that movie is great. It's so funny, but has the worst title of all time. So lazy. Yeah. (laughs) From At a Twist of Oliver, Oscar History What Ifs. What if Leonardo DiCaprio won Best Actor for The Wolf of Wall Street in 2013? Then 2015 would have gone to Brian Cranston. Fastbender. Damon, easily. Anyone else? Yeah, I think it would have been Damon. <laughs> Damon. Yeah. Even though Trumbo had that single nomination, there was still a lot of love with the actors, and he was coming right off Breaking Bad, and it, it was the Cranston era. I think there would have been more love than some people remember. I mean, The Martian was the only other Best Picture nominee, and he had a Golden Globe, so I I don't really see anybody else who could win that one. And he had never won like anything for acting up until that point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. What if Kate Blanchett won Best Actress for Elizabeth in nineteen ninety eight? Well, I would say then she doesn't win for The Aviator, but looking at this lineup, I'm like maybe it's Natalie Portman. I don't know. I don't think history changes at all. I think she wins three. Yeah. No, I don't think she would have three that quickly. That doesn't happen with, you know, over the course of under 20 years. I think she would win for Elizabeth and for Blue Jasmine. But 2004, would it be Virginia Madsen? I think so. I know that Virginia Madsen was sort of the critics darling leading into that night. So it probably could have been her. Portman won the Globe, so there's she had precursors, uh, and then I think if Portman wins here, she wins again in 2010. Yeah, but I mean, Closer had the two acting nominations, which you know makes sense to get those, but I don't know that the Academy at large would respond to that movie the same way the actors did, whereas Sideways yeah. was loved across the board. I mean, it's possible. I'm not saying it's you know never going to happen. What if Helen Mirren won Best Supporting Actress for Gosford Park? I think she still wins for the Queen. Yeah. Yeah. That was a runaway. That happens. Yeah. Five year difference. I could see it happening. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's supporting lead. Do we think that Jennifer Connelly then also just doesn't ever win an Oscar? I yeah. think. I think <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. Fine with me. Uh, honestly, Jennifer Connelly has not been of note since that Requiem for a Dream, A Beautiful Mind, back to back year, in my opinion. So there's that. This one's really, really difficult. There's a lot of fuckery going on with this last one. <sighs> What if Ang Lee won Best Director for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Ooh, okay. Then he would... Oh, this is really going to change history. I think yeah. he would still win for Brokeback in 2005. I don't know how... No, he wouldn't get three, but somehow, some way, something would happen, align the spirits, align, you know, something, and Ben Affleck would somehow get in in 2012 and win. Yeah, you know, Michael, I had the exact same thought. I don't know why, but that just feels likely i think there's you know less impetus to reward angley a third time and therefore people are more okay with uh ben affleck as a nominee i i disagree i think he still wins for broke back and i still f- i i man that's really hard it, Shit. It, well, the thing about like, the it would be like the, like the butterfly effect like ben zeitlin would never be born and <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, because, I mean, the thing to take into account with his life of Pywin is that that only happens because Affleck isn't there. So exactly. it is weird to think, like, for some reason, if there is a sense that Ang Lee has been justly rewarded already and there isn't a huge passion to, like, get him another Oscar, does that influence the way that the 2012 season plays out and Affleck does get in? And if he does, he definitely has it. it it's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. Or what if it's the same lineup in 2012 and he already has the two Oscars, one for Crouching Tiger, one for Brokeback. Then what happens then? I mean, would David O. Russell take it? Would the uh, Harvey campaign pay off and, you know, it would get actor or actress and director? I think it would be David O. Russell because the obvious thing is to think maybe Spielberg for Lincoln, but it always kind of felt a little weird that his third Oscar would be for that. And I love Lincoln, but that was just kind of the feeling of the award season. Ugh, it's such a weird okay. Play, play play devil's advocate here with me. What if Ang Lee wins for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but he does not win for Brokeback Mountain because the the thinking is he's just won again so soon. Now I know you're all going to cite Alejandro Gonzalez in R two here, but I'm just play devil's advocate with me. If he doesn't win for Brokeback that year, who does win? Paul Haggis. Paul Haggis. Yeah, <laughs> shit. <laughs> I was hoping there'd be a different answer, but shit. Might be Clooney. Might be Clooney for Gunny Good Luck, but I don't know. As a lone director win? But then would he win for Siriana? No, and then it is... Gyllenhaal. Giamatti. Giamatti? I don't know. (laughs) Well, yeah, because then that would be his makeup for Sideways. Yeah. And I think he won some precursors, too, if I remember. Yeah, he had SAG and Choice, I think. God damn you, Ang Lee. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Every time he enters the Oscar race, chaos ensues. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Juan Carlos Ohano asks, favorite best foreign language film winner of the last decade aside from Parasite? Wow. More. I mean, that's, that's a category that is maybe the best collection of winners of any, I think, of uh, this decade. I mean, it's in a better world I could live without, and I'm not a big fan of The Great Beauty, but all the other ones... Uh, Separation, Amour, Son of Saul, The Salesman, Fantastic Woman, and Roma. You know, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's very hard to pick. I'm going with a separation. Me too. That one really stands out for me. It's the best of the bunch. A, a very distinguished bunch. I'm going to go with Roma. I still love that movie. I think I'd go with Amour. Yeah, it's definitely the funniest of the bunch. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Oh, this is interesting. This is like a more of a business question. Uh, Let's Talk Entertainment asks, uh, why do you think it's difficult for new script writers to obtain opportunities? And do you feel uh, that will change due to the number of streaming services coming along that may need content? Well, I think this is, I don't think this is a hard question uh, in the sense that, you know, it has to be like a well thought out given answer. But at the end of the day, I just think it's a very oversaturated market. There's a formula for how to write a screenplay. Anybody can learn the formula for putting together a screenplay, and everybody is doing exactly that. So you just have a lot of people doing the same thing, and it's just really, really difficult to get your screenplay to stand out amongst a very crowded field. Yeah, it's like you throw everything up against the wall, and what sticks, sticks, and what doesn't, you know, you try again. Uh, bad education. It's like inside Lewin Davis. It's not so much, you know, the lack of talent. It's just there's so much talent out there that you got to get lucky. At a certain point, you know, you mentioned Inside Llewyn Davis and compared to producing a song or even a television episode or something like that, 
it's it's a big financial risk on a new writer to make a movie off of their script. Like that costs a lot of money, so you have to you have to really get yourself in there for someone to be willing to take that risk on you, I think. If that makes sense. So so much of the movie business is still connections. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's you know, once you get past that, then you have people with track records and television and maybe small. So if you're a new writer and expect to get a feature film, I mean, yeah. the odds are so stacked against you. Um, you know, much better to do, go the um, television route and then upwards or the indie route and upwards from there. But uh, out of the blue, unless it's a fantastic idea, and even if it's a fantastic idea, they might pair you up with a veteran writer. Anyway, so uh, this one comes from John Brace. A film is screened once per day to an empty house for the minimum run period. It is then streamed like The Irishman. Does it qualify for the Oscars? I, I don't think so. I think the one caveat is that you need more than one showing a day. But, but, the, but the fact that it's at an empty house and not at a movie theater... Um, well, well, empty house just means empty theater, right? Yeah, like nobody yeah. bought tickets for it. Yeah, but if you, you know, if you live in Los Angeles and you used to see shorts, um, you know, being playing at Lindley Theaters one time a day to qualify, if they do it for shorts, you know, there's a precedent at least. Yeah, I think that shorts and features have different rules, though. Um, like, I want to say that because I remember actually looking at the rules recently for something, and I want to say it was like it needed to be in a theater with like a minimum of three show times, and you needed some kind of advertisement for it to prove that it was there. Like, it's not a whole lot that you need, but I do think that you needed at least three showings. I think. I think that's what it said. Okay. Uh, we have a very big James Bond fan here on the podcast. And Cody, you're currently going through the movies. Tom, I imagine you've seen a majority of the films, as have uh, other people here as well. Uh, Richard Houlihan asks, Sean Connery is the only 007 actor to ever receive an Oscar nomination or win. Did the other five deliver a performance throughout their career that you thought deserved Oscar recognition? Um, is it cheating if I said it was in another James Bond movie? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you really believe it? Uh, yes, I do. All right, what is it then? I think Daniel Craig is great in Casino Royale. And I that movie is also something that I have learned to really appreciate more and more as the years have gone on. And I actually really do believe that his interpretation of the character brings so much more than what any other actor did before. And I truly do believe that it is a performance that was worthy of more consideration. Uh, okay. Um, hmm. But if I can't pick an actual Bond movie, then I would say uh, Daniel Craig in Knives Out. That was going to be my answer. Yeah. 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 I've got a, another Daniel Craig one that um, I would say as the vengeful son in uh, Road to Perdition. He's good in that, too. I'm just, like, looking at the Best Actor lineup for 2006, and I'm just trying to figure out who I could remove for Daniel Craig. You got Will Smith, Peter O'Toole, Ryan Gosling, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Forrest Whitaker. I mean, like, we love Peter O'Toole, but when is the last time you thought of Venus? Um, <laughs> Jesus. This yeah. very podcast, we talked about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. All right, I, I, I can jive with you on that one. That's fine. Uh, Christian Uhlenberg, what other hobbies have you picked up since the pandemic started? <laughs> I learned how to play chess for the first time ever, finally. Oh. Um, I'm really bad at it, but we're working on it. You can reenact now the uh, scenes from X-Men with Magneto <laughs> and Charles Xavier. How cute. And the thing now is, like, I finally know what's happening in all those scenes and movies with chess. Before I was like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I learned how to clean the house. <laughs> I've um I've picked up three hobbies, none of which I had ever had any experience with before quarantine. Um, playing the game Oregon Trail, uh, TikTok, and um, watching Star Kid musicals. So basically, I've gone back and like, I, I'm I'm embracing being a part of the millennial generation just a little bit late. <laughs> I've become a better bartender, which uh, for better or worse, hey, we're home. <laughs> Yeah, now's the time. <laughs> I've learned that I can function uh, while drinking White Claws from the minute I wake up to the minute I go to sleep. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let me make you a drink. Removable skills right there. I casually joke all the time, if COVID-19 is not my blood, White Claws definitely are. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So now, uh, asking a question amongst ourselves here, um, I actually will start us off. Um, I want you all to answer uh, this question I am going to ask you all. Have you read any books uh, during your quarantine? And if so, uh, what, Michael? Uh, yes, I have. They're, they're not books I think anyone here on this podcast would be reading. Uh, they are books for my graduate courses about performance consulting and strength finders and uh, learning design. Lots of very interesting topics that I'm sure you would all love to read about one day. I actually did read uh, Strength Finder uh, before, Strength Finder 2.0. Yeah. And uh, by Tom Rath. you did the assessment? Yes, I did. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's what we've been doing lately. Yeah. Wow. Nicole? Um, So I am still working my way through David Copperfield. Um, For next best adaptation? Yes. Nice. you know, it's taking longer than I thought it would because I, I'm really struggling to read right now, actually. Like, it takes more concentration than my mind has. Um, but for work, I've been reading a lot of stuff about Ted Turner. So that's been very fascinating. Mm. Cody? No, I'm horrible. I My brain fell out of my ears in the like five months ago, I feel that's like. That's all right. I've been slowly working through Watchmen, which I actually started when the miniseries started. So if that gives you a peek into how I'm doing reading wise, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Tom? Uh, For the quarantine, I gave up books. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I never started. (laughs) I'm just pouring over the Internet in a way that I've never been able to do before. So Mm. I'm I'm reading, but not necessarily in a bound way. Yeah. Josh? So when No Time to Die was supposed to come out in April, my original plan that I was putting into place was that I was going to actually read all of the James Bond novels because I'd actually never read them fully before. And I was going to end it by rereading Casino Royale. That was going to lead into me rewatching all the Daniel Craig movies leading up to No Time to Die. So that kind of got put on hold, but I'm still working my way through rereading Casino Royale. And then after that, I'm actually going to plan to finally read Dune. Cool. Oh, my gosh. You can join us for the next Best Adaptation podcast. Yeah, I, I might be able to actually join you on that one. Woohoo! Nice. Awesome. All right. Uh, anyone else? Uh, Michael, do you have a question to ask? OK, perfect. Uh, it could be about anything, right? It could be about anything. OK. 
uh, I'm going to have a continuation of a conversation I started with Nicole, but want an answer to now. Uh, Nicole introduced me to something called a Star Kid musical that I had no idea what that was. Yes, I'm, you know, the clueless theater kid, apparently. (laughs) Uh, So, Nicole, now that you've seen a few of them, which one has been your favorite? Oh, my God. Okay. So, Star Kid musicals, if if people who are listening don't know, is actually how Darren Chris got his start. Um, It blew my mind that Michael did not know that this is where Darren Chris came from before. I thought he just showed up on Glee. And that was that. Yeah, no. Um, so the the classic one for listeners that they might know, even if they don't know, like the name of the company that does them is a very Potter musical. Um, of the ones I've watched, though, thus far, there's this one called The Guy Who Didn't Like Musicals. If you want something like so that's like absolutely bonkers to watch and is free on YouTube, please go watch it. It is about like a pandemic that turns people into like they sing everything. Um, but they're also like kind of creepy aliens and it's just honestly a plus I've watched it twice in the past week. (laughs) It's all that my like quarantine brain can handle right now. Um, I actually highly recommend those to everyone. Like if you need something that you don't have to think about while you watch, uh, everything that they've made is super good. Josh. Um, I think the question that I want to ask um, it's movie related and you probably have maybe heard something similar to this, but, um, I would ask like, what is everybody's favorite experience of actually being in the movie theater? Like what's the one time you went to the film, uh, to see a movie in theaters and you had the best experience. Ooh. I, I would say that my experience of watching the fellowship of the ring and the two towers before I saw Return of the King for the first time ever was one that I would almost equate to a religious experience. I feel like I watched a baby be born. Like it was life changing. I swear to God. I vividly remember um, people with pillows in the movie theater um, for for such a long experience. It was it, it was it was insane. It was crazy. I feel like my obvious one would be watching Avengers Endgame opening night in New York City. That crowd was insane. Oh it was oh. Like, honestly some of the most like it's the most like community I've ever felt <laughs> with other people that I didn't know. Um, I remember distinctly like Loki's first entrance. Everyone in the theater started like screaming and clapping. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm in the right place. I just not even that, but like every moment it was like every five seconds to audience was going nuts over everything yelling and clapping and there were parts where there was like really audible sobbing and it was honestly just like a really magical experience but other than that because i feel like that's kind of a gimme for any like marvel fan well like um, also too like a year prior with like infinity war oh i i still get a kick like a smile comes across my face when I think of the tears of children in that movie theater. Oh, it was it was glorious. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Other than that, I have to say, like, the press screening that I went to of Little Women, which I went to with my mother, um, and it was my first press screening. Oh, that's sweet. It's one of the most magical things that's ever occurred to me. I remember I got the invitation to it. I was walking around uh, Galaxy's Edge in Disney World, and I stopped in my tracks and started crying. Um, and then I cried through basically the whole movie. But it was one of those things where you're watching a movie, and you just, like, you're almost like, is this real or is this a dream? And I've dreamed it's this good. Um, and, like, that is something that will stay with me until my dying day. So Nice. I have a great memory from 2008 
And that was when I saw the movie Burn After Reading on opening night with the sold-out crowd. And for context, this is, I was in middle school when Burn After Reading came out, and it was like one of the first R-rated movies I was allowed to see in theaters. I went with one of my parents, and, you know, you can't go with anyone uh, your age. Since I was under 17, you had to go with an adult. (laughs) And I felt like very sophisticated that I was in theaters seeing the new Coen Brothers movie. You know, this is a very big deal. But being there with the crowd audibly reacting to all the major twists and turns and shocking moments. One in particular, I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about if you've seen the movie. And just being there, everyone is like on the edge of their seat in the same moment, watching things as they happen. It was really a moment I still remember to this day. I, I've got a memory. I lived in New York in the 70s. And uh, I, a friend of mine said to me, I think it was in second week of May in 1977. He said, well, I got into a press screening. I thought, my God, I was really excited because I, you know, and he said, I got an extra ticket. Would you want to come with me? So I, I said, sure. I'd never been to a press screening before. I didn't know what we were seeing. Uh, I went to the screening was in the Lowe's Astor Plaza in Times Square, which is now sort of a rock concert place. And we sat down. And I wasn't quite sure what I was going to see, but it was a press screening, and I was excited about that. And then the lights came down, and I hear this big, loud musical note, and the word Star Wars comes up. Ah! Mm. Oh, my God. What a build-up, Tom. <laughs> oh, this is interesting. Um, oh, Carrie Fisher's in it. Oh, that's fun. And uh, then, my God, I was just transformed, and I just sat there. About for about a couple of minutes after it was over, and oh yeah, crazy. Yeah, if I could go back and watch anything opening night, it probably would be the original Star Wars. I mean, just the non-anticipation in a way, like nobody really yeah. knew what it was going to be. Nobody knew it was going to be what it was. I would love to see that. That's incredible. What's your answer, Cody? Um, you know, I'm having a little trouble with this one. My first thought was also a Star Wars movie, which was uh, seeing Force Awakens opening night was just, you know, so fun. I remember specifically the moment where it's like you see the reveal of the Millennium Falcon for the first time. And my audience didn't even like cheer or say yay. It was kind of just a noise that everybody just emitted out of their bodies from their mouths by accident. Like it was just a (laughs) guttural sound. Um, But this isn't a specific memory, but I have to say, if you ever get the chance to somehow see a movie um, just with, like, your significant other or just another friend or something, and you're the only ones in the theater, I highly recommend it. It's like seeing a movie in your living room on the biggest and best possible screen. Uh, It's only happened to me once in a major theater, and it was weirdly the Lego movie, too. Uh, (laughs) Which, I guess, when you see it, like, a week into its release on a Tuesday, yeah, there's going to be nobody else in the theater. Um, but even still, like the movie being semi unremarkable, it's still like the perfect way to see a movie because you can, you know, basically talk out loud. You can have as much fun as you want, and it makes the movie better. Yeah, um, that is so true, Cody. One of the times that my sister and I went to see Little Women, which I saw it in theaters four times, um, we were the only people in the theater, so we just like shrieked and like quoted things out loud, and it was the most fun experience, especially because it was a rewatch for both of us. But to get to have it was like as though we had rented out the whole freaking theater to to screen it for ourselves. And that is such a fun experience. I mean, I like all of those answers from everybody. Uh, the one that really jumped into my mind actually is when I went to see Grindhouse. Uh, back oh, in my God. And I will always cherish that memory because 
I just found that to be such a unique experience of watching a movie that I really, even at that time, felt was so incredibly rare and was never going to happen again. And I just loved the whole experience of these two movies and the fake trailers in between. And I always got the feeling like my audience just didn't really get it, but I was having a blast. And it's really one of my most cherished memories of going to the movies. Same, Josh. Same. Uh, So we heard a question from myself, Josh, Michael, Nicole, you go. Okay. So we obviously did our Mulan podcast um, not that long ago. And as I said, I watched both Frozen movies yesterday. And I've been thinking a lot about Disney villains. And I actually, I know this is just kind of a silly throwaway question, but I would love to know who everyone's favorite Disney villain is. (sighs) It's very close for me between Jafar and Scar, but I have to say... I've, I gotta say Jafar. I had his like Cobra staff as a toy as a child, so I I, I gotta say him. I love that. <laughs> I think Jean Claude Frollo is the most evil, mm-hmm. but Scar is the most entertaining. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Ursula. I mean, who doesn't love a drag queen villain? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Don't forget about the body language. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a great voice performance from Pat Carroll. Oh, it's so good. I'd have to also go with Scar, but it just, it, it, for the combination of the line readings by Jeremy Irons and the way the character is drawn, you could almost see, you know, Peter O'Toole playing him at some point. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I, I would agree. I think um, Frollo is the scariest, but Scar is by far my favorite. So, yeah. Um, Cody. Uh, mine's a simple question. What was the first movie you ever saw in theaters? Lion King. Mine is, uh, mine's also Lion King. <laughs> yeah. I can, and I remember it. I was four years old and in Germany. Whoa. Oh my God. Mm. Was it oh, in wow. German? Uh, I don't remember that aspect of it. I do remember seeing the Lion King on a big screen. Like that image sticks out in my head. And, um, as I got older, I, forgot like where it was and my parents told me that um they saw it when we were on vacation in germany um it released uh over there and um they happened to go you know so just one of those weird things and that's my earliest memory that i can remember my first movie in the theater was in april 1998 i was two and a half years old and it was barney's great adventure ah yes (laughs) Barney's Great Adventure. Now, the really wonderful thing about this is it's a movie I actually remember being there. I remember being terrified and crawling under the seat because I didn't know what was happening in the theater. But uh, the very first sight and sound I saw on a screen was, and I guess sight doesn't matter. It was more the sound. The movie opens with the Bernadette Peters song written by Jerry Herman. <laughs> so I think everything just comes full circle from that moment there on. Wow. It really does. <laughs> Uh, mine was Anastasia. I remember seeing that in theaters too. Yep. Still one of my favorite movies. First movie in the theater always holds a special place in one's heart. Tom? Yeah. Um, I had, well, I go way, way, way back and I probably saw some Disney things when I was young, but I didn't really remember them. My first real memory of it, my grandmother took me to see Butterfield 8. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, what a thing to take a kid to. But wow. she thought it was Eddie Fish was in it and she thought it was a musical. Oh. And, it's, 
And she was absolutely mortified, and I had no idea what was going on. But uh, somehow I sensed there was embarrassment, so I enjoyed that. (laughs) Tom, I'm looking at the poster right now, and the tagline literally says, the most desirable woman in town is the easiest to find. (laughs) That that has shaped my life ever since. (laughs) Josh? Well, I think that the first movie that I went to see in theaters was Aladdin, but I really don't have a memory of it. So the one that I actually think is my earliest memory of being in a theater, uh, I think it was actually The Mask, the Jim Carrey movie. Yeah, it's such a weird movie, I think, to take a four-year-old to, but it, it it's very interesting. And even at that age, I remember really, really loving it. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Tom? Um, I was very nosy. It's like, do you remember what it was that took you from just a person who went to see a movie on a Saturday night to the crazed people that we all are today? Hmm. Yeah, it it was definitely um, it was definitely Lord of the Rings. Uh, specifically, not when I saw it in the movie theater, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, but when I got the DVD and I uh, watched those bonus features and I learned about the making of that movie. I became obsessed with the making of movies uh, from that point on. Yeah. Uh, for me, I actually would say that that turning point actually happened when I was six years old. And I usually tell this story with um, my friends a lot, but basically when I was six years old, I saw Mars attacks in theaters and it was sort of a special thing. Cause we went downtown to see it and it wasn't in our local theater and it was around Christmas. So it was sort of a special time of year And I remember watching that movie and thinking, I don't know what's going on. This is so strange and weird, but I really, really love it. And I remember that movie did really set me on the path of wanting to know more about movies. And then in a couple years, like I knew who Tim Burton was. I knew that he was a director and and what that job was. And that's what I wanted to find out more about. So I really trace everything back to seeing Mars Attacks at six years old. I'm very envious of you got that in your system at age six. I was 11 when I had that realization. (laughs) I think I was always kind of a movie person. My mom's very much a movie person. We always had movies on in the house, especially like Catherine Hepburn, um, Audrey Hepburn, like older movies. But I remember distinctly in high school watching The Godfather for the first time, which is such a like pretentious answer. But watching that and being like, oh my God, that's cinema. Um, (laughs) And kind of going from there and being really interested. And after that, I think I watched like Lawrence of Arabia and I got very into, it. I had a history professor who was really into like older, great film. Um, and so he introduced me to a lot of stuff and I think it all comes from there. Really. I can't really pinpoint any one moment. I think it's like always been in my system to one degree or another. Uh, like our friend, Will Mavity, I used to like memorize MPAA rating descriptions and tell my friends, <laughs> Oh, this movie's rated PG 13 for suggestive content or whatever and uh, and no one cared but uh you know it was just like you know you followed the industry you followed what was happening even if i wasn't allowed to see the movies i wanted to know what was going on and what was being released and what was popular so that one day when i was allowed to see pg-13 or r-rated movies i would have a whole list ready to go of what i could catch up with but i think that's the one overarching thing was the oscars like knowing that they were around and even though i couldn't always see the movies that were there there was something to you know look forward to eventually 
Yeah, Michael, my answer is very similar to yours. I remember getting a giant coffee table book about the Oscars at a like book fair in middle school. And that kind of set me on the path of being more interested in movies than I already was, which I was to a degree. Um, but that made me way more interested in like the history and the craft of films. So I think that's I don't really have a specific movie, but it's definitely, I guess, the Oscars in general. Then do you still have that book? Oh, yeah, it's right behind me. That's awesome. Do you remember who gave it to you? Um, the, the woman working the scholastic book fair. I don't know. I bought it myself. <laughs> you should find her and give her some roses or something as a thank you. <laughs> and Cody, I think we had the same book. I think we talked about this once. Oh, it's probably. like the paperback with an envelope on the top front. Yeah. Oh, and no, mine's fine. like an earlier edition though. Yeah. There's so many good ones out there just, you know, going through these were all the winners and, you know, you check off what you've seen or just go through and read all about yeah. it. It's great. Michael, similarly to you, I'd memorize the best picture nominees and the winners. And I had my friends in middle school quiz me at lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> And they're like, what are these? I've never yeah. heard of these. <laughs> what the hell is the Cider House rules? <laughs> We're still figuring that out. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for your questions. And thank you, team, for asking these questions as well. We hope everyone is enjoying the podcast here on a weekly basis during this very interesting time in our lives. Uh, we will be back, obviously, with more content uh, for the month of May. Uh, we're still continuing Next Best Adaptation, which is where we review novels that are going to hopefully be best adapted screenplay <laughs> contenders. Uh, we are doing Next Best Theater, where we uh, talk about musical theater, Broadway plays, you name it, anything that takes place on the stage. Uh, we're also doing Next Best Series, where we're talking about miniseries. Uh, and the month of May is going to be huge for that. We have a lot of new miniseries that are popping up that we cannot wait to discuss with you all, especially our continuation of Mrs. America. We're doing our 2014 retrospective series as well. Uh, next upcoming review is Foxcatcher, so you guys can look for that sometime later this week. There's a lot of really, really great stuff going on here, uh, despite the fact that there's a lack of movie theater content we're still getting streaming content we're still getting content in general and we just really really appreciate you all sticking with us through this time michael where can they find you on the internet you can find me on twitter at m schwartz 95 nicole ackman you can find me everywhere on the internet at nicole ackman 16 josh parham you can find me on twitter at jr parham cody derricks I'm on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram at CodyMonster91. And Tom O'Brien. And I am on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. You can find me at Next Best Picture. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon know all those podcasts i just told you about well if you want to listen to them head on over to patreon where for one dollar minimum a month you will get that exclusive podcast content from us thank you so much for listening as always and we shall see you all next time